Okay, Matthew chapter 1 again, and uh, it's Christmas in May. <laughs> That's okay. I'm normally one who, you know, when other people are wanting to do Christmas carols early, I'm kind of one of the, you know, you either fall one of the two ways. You either want Christmas carols all year long, or you want them for about a week. You know, I'm, I'm maybe a couple weeks, so... Uh, maybe that, I don't know, maybe I'm a Scrooge because of that. But regardless of that, it's always, always a good time to celebrate and worship Christ. And specifically, it's always a good time to celebrate his incarnation. And that's what we're going to do this morning in Matthew chapter number one. We'll pick up where we left off last week in verse number 18. Uh, but before we read, I do again I want to say Happy Mother's Day, and may I publicly say that I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for my mother. <laughs> That's true in many ways, and uh, to all the mothers and really all the ladies who are here with us, uh, with which we couldn't live without, thank you for everything you do for our families, for your families, for your children, your communities, your church. Thank you for your love for Christ, and uh, we do want to honor you in that fashion today. Uh, and... It's interesting because in his day, Jesus had what you might call um, a culturally inordinate view of women. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I mean by that, that he really gave them a high place in his ministry and his teaching. And uh, that's a good thing. Of course, we should follow that um, to the degree that he does. Women show up all throughout the Gospels in the New Testament and uh, while scripture doesn't disregard that there are differences between men and women, it does place a very high value on both being created in the image of God for his glory and for his purposes. Um, and even last week, we noticed in the genealogy of Christ that Matthew highlights four women and five if you include Mary. We looked at some snapshots of those women and the fact that they were placed in Jesus' line uh, by God's sovereignty, by his grace, and the fact that those women made the list, prepared our hearts and our minds, it prepared Matthew's readers for the shocking birth story of Jesus. And that's what Matthew gives us in this next section today. So I want to read uh, Matthew 1, starting in verse number 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, uh, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
uh, ask him for his blessing on the word this morning. God, as we've read your word, as we have sung uh, even portions of your word in the songs and hymns that we've sung, as we've listened to it, uh, as we've worshiped, God, we, we come to you now as we view this wonderful, miraculous, uh, strange, but yet amazing story of the incarnation, the birth of Christ, how you orchestrated that in human history to be a real event. Uh, it's, it's a marvelous thing that we don't just have to reserve for December in our calendar, Lord, we ought to be marveling at this each and every day as part of the miracle of the gospel and the work that took place to redeem human beings. So, Lord, help us now as we look at your word here in Matthew. Make it come alive to our minds. Make it, make it speak to our spirits and our souls. Uh, breathe in through your word uh, the words of life. Where else can we go? As Jesus' disciples said, he alone has the words of eternal life, and Lord, you are the word, the eternal word of life. We come to you today humbly. Thank you, Lord. Bless this service in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we said before that Matthew, in his introductory statements and his genealogy, is really seems to be speaking uh, to his Jewish family, his first century audience. And he's saying, don't you see how obvious it all is that Jesus of Nazareth is the king? And one of the proofs of that in all the gospel records is the miraculous nature of Jesus' life. Jesus' miraculous life. But Jesus' miraculous life begins with a miraculous birth. We could say it this way. One of the fundamental truths of biblical Christianity held by believers from the first century on is the truth of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I can hear you saying, as we've already alluded to, aren't we supposed to talk about this at Christmas time? And uh, it is Christmas in May. I will grant that today. Uh, because, but because Matthew talks about it, and we're in Matthew, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, at the onset, we should note that the way that the gospel writers speak about the virgin birth is almost unceremonious. What do I mean by that? I mean, they, they don't go to great lengths to parade it and elaborate on it and defend it and go into great detail about how exactly it took place. Really, it's, it's spoken of something that's almost just assumed. It's something that is understood, almost like the way we speak of breathing. We don't really speak of it much, but we know it's there. We don't speak of our heartbeat much. We know it's there. Of course, some people do speak about it a lot, but most of us just assume it, unless there's a problem, of course. Those things, breathing and a heartbeat as being assumed, are, are kind of irreducibly a part of our human existence, and that's kind of how Scripture treats the virgin birth of Christ. It's irreducibly part of the gospel story. In other words, if you get rid of it, you ruin the whole thing. Here in this passage, the virgin birth is also coupled with another irreducible part of the gospel story, and that is the deity of Christ, or the fact that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Just as all believers throughout the centuries have unequivocally confessed the virgin birth of Christ, they have also unequivocally confessed and believed in the deity of Christ. Now, what's the point of this? I'm just trying to sneak in a lesson on systematic theology in today's sermon. No, not at all. In fact, it's really the opposite. The point is that these beliefs 
didn't emerge over time. They weren't simply adopted centuries later by councils and creeds. They didn't become a part of the truth of the gospel. They are essentially part of the truth of the gospel of Christ. And the case in point is Matthew chapter 1. These truths come together, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, and what we call the incarnation, the fact that Jesus took on or added a human nature to his divine person. But we put it simply, Jesus is truly God and truly man. This is a miracle beyond miracles. And here we have it in basic terms by Matthew. So why is this principle so vital, and why does Matthew put it forth so soon in his record? Because apart from Jesus being both truly divine and truly human, we have no gospel. If Jesus was just an ordinary human, then he isn't Emmanuel, God with us. And if he isn't Emmanuel, God with us, then he cannot be Yeshua, the one who saves his people from their sins. So as we look at this passage today, we'll see this. The birth of the king is glorious because the Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. That's very basic, but that is exactly what Matthew's gospel tells us in these few verses. We'll see four different things in this passage as we look at it together, and the first one we'll see is a remarkable introduction, a remarkable introduction. Matthew's birth narrative of of Jesus is so much shorter than, uh, say, Luke's, which is the one that's the traditional one read during Christmas time. It has the most details about the time and the history of the birth itself, and Matthew's is relatively brief. And really, verse number 18 is almost a summary of the whole thing, which says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew gives the entire sense of the whole miracle of the incarnation kind of right there in that verse. And I want us to encourage, or I want to encourage us rather, to view this with fresh eyes this morning. And maybe the fact that we're looking at this in May rather than in November or December uh, will be enough difference to catch our attention. But when we read verse 18, having read it time and time again, having heard it time and time again, knowing the truth and believing it, are we taken back? by the seriousness with which Matthew is giving this story. Here's this young couple, uh, betrothed, that is engaged, uh, we might speak of it, probably quite young. It wasn't rare at all for young girls to be uh, given to marriage by the age of 13 or so, and young men only a few years older than that. Now, there are speculations that maybe Joseph was much older. We don't really know, but it's possible that at least Mary was quite young. And regardless, the story begins with just a regular occurrence, a betrothal or an engagement, probably arranged by the family. And this took place before the wedding. A betrothal like this in that day was much more binding than a modern engagement. Uh, They were legally pretty much as good as marriage, and that for the betrothal to be broken, uh, it took the equivalence of a written divorce. 
To be in betrothal, the groom or the husband would have to pay a betrothal price to secure the future of the bride. And there was very little social interaction or contact between the couple. Uh, they would not have, uh, they would not live together or have any normal marital relationship until they came together a year later, which refers to the actual marriage celebration and the consummation. So this was a time of preparation, usually a year. Uh, they were a couple, but not fully. Uh, there was no physical or sexual intercourse or relationship, so there was no chance of conception or childbirth. And any breach of that would have been seen as adultery, which, of course, under Jewish law, would have been punishable by death. Then Matthew drops the bomb. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before Joseph and Mary had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, but think about it for a minute, because in that day, if you knew, the from the Holy Spirit part wouldn't have been what was in your ears. It would have just been, she was found to be with child before they came together. This would have been a serious thing in the culture. A woman betrothed, not yet married, but pregnant. Of course, what would the assumption be? As if that fact was not shocking enough, though, Matthew gives us one of the most understated miracles in Scripture that this pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. And we read that with eyes glazed over because we've been in church all our life, right? But it was not a glazed over fact for Matthew. It was an immense and foundational truth to the entire ministry of Jesus. It's interesting, uh, there are other ancient myths that put forth, you know, counterfeit stories of so-called virgin births, but they go into great detail about how the deity came upon the woman crassly or forcibly, crudely, and had a normal physical conception so that the divine agent involved was no different than a physical father, but the Bible gives us no crass or crude explanation here. Uh, there is no concept here that this was any normal circumstance. And there is no explanation necessary of that because it is seen as it is, a miraculous conception. Luke chapter 1 records the angel's announcement to Mary and goes on in verse 34 and 35 where Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And the angel answered her, How can this be? She asked. I've never been with a man. Uh, I'm betrothed, but we've never been together. We're still in our year of preparation. How can this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. The power of God will do this. The child will be called holy, but not just holy. The child will be called the Son of God. We noted a couple weeks ago that the beginning of Matthew started with the Greek word Genesis. And here he uses it again. It's translated as birth. It's the beginning, that is earthly and humanly speaking, of the Messiah's story. Of course, it's not the beginning of God's story. Rather, it's a new beginning and a pronouncement of his redemption 
marked by a miracle of all miracles. Thus, the first miracle that we have introduced and spoken of in the Gospel records is this remarkable, understated miracle of the virgin conception, the, the genesis or the beginning, humanly speaking, of the incarnation of the Son of God. So that simple little introduction by Matthew is a remarkable understatement, really, of one of the most profound miracles in all the Gospels. We move on, though, from a remarkable introduction to a just reaction. A just reaction. Look at verse uh, number 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As we read this, we must remember that Matthew isn't just retelling merely a book of theology or just a book of miracles. He's retelling a real story, a story with real people. For instance, the genealogy was full of real people, and so is the rest of the story. He tells this story from Joseph's perspective, and we find Joseph in a dilemma, a predicament. The fact that the Bible uses the word husband here, even though they're just betrothed, uh, is not an error. It, it displays the force or the seriousness of the relationship of a betrothed couple. It was legally binding. Uh, they were as good as married in the legal sense, which heightens the stakes in which Joseph finds out this news, this shocking news that Mary was pregnant. Can you imagine the feeling in his stomach? He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it wasn't his child. His heart was probably broken, and the story that he heard what is, it was from the Holy Ghost. How can this be? Mary asked that. I'm sure Joseph asked that as well. Perhaps he had thoughts like, well, she's never lied to me before. She's not known to be a, a talebearer. Why would she make up a story like this? As Matthew talks about Joseph, he calls him a just man, which in this context means that he was upright, he was fair, he was equitable, he was uh, probably devout in his Judaism. He knew the law, which means he knew the law in Leviticus 20, where adultery was seen as not just a cause for separation or divorce, but it was even punishable by death in the Jewish civil code. Had he been in a different frame of mind, he could have easily called for this sentence. Yet something in his mind told him to take a more peaceable route. Matthew says because he was just and he was unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to put her away quietly. He wanted no harm done to Mary. But at the same time, the relationship was off. Uh, he was in the right, at, at least if there had been adultery involved. And, rather, and really, he wasn't being unfair at all or cruel. He was really just the opposite. Uh, they would legally separate, though that wouldn't make it any easier. And notice here that Joseph, humanly speaking, wasn't thinking of committing any sin. He, he wasn't overreacting, unfair or unrealistic. He was really being gracious and kind, even displaying mercy in a human circumstance. But he didn't have the whole picture. 
The humiliation of an unplanned birth out of wedlock would have been enough. He didn't want to display his own wrath. But this is where in this gospel story, the the mundane human aspect of it, even a just and gracious display of human nature, as in the case of Joseph, that display is shattered and overtaken by the divine and the miraculous. We go on quickly. Uh, An angelic intervention. Of course, we know the story, but we read it anyway. Verses 20 and 21. As he considered these things, they're in his mind. He's mulling them over in his head. He thinks he has the whole story. He's not sure. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As he considered these things. This was not an easy thing for Joseph or Mary. This was not a decision that came uh, simply or uh, was just automatic. He was thinking of his options his betrothed, his reputation, her reputation, the law, the consequences, uh, the sacrifices that would be made in any circumstance or any way that this story would play out. And while he was thinking, he was given this vision. And notice how the angel addresses Joseph in his dream. The angel says to him, Joseph, son of David. I don't know. Joseph's mind was probably racked. Um, I'm using a little bit of imagination here, but I wonder at all if that caused Joseph to think, if there was even an inkling of imagination or a thought that said, is that part of the puzzle? Does does this family tie-in that this miraculous being has spoken of me with, does it have any part of this puzzle? And the angel goes on and says, do not fear. Fear would have summed up Joseph's feelings. Fear or uncertainty. Um, I always like to define fear as a lack of understanding, a lack of control, and usually a combination of those two things. And I think that describes Joseph's circumstance to a T. He didn't understand. How could Mary be with a child? How did this happen? Was she unfaithful? And he certainly couldn't control the situation. He could only react. At this point, what was done was done. But the angel reminds him that his lack of understanding and his lack of control was irrelevant here. There is one who has perfect understanding and perfect control, and he has wrought a miracle. What Joseph perceived to be a disastrous and heartbreaking situation was revealed to be miraculous, and not simply miraculous, but it would also be liberating and redemptive. A child from the Holy Spirit. When I think of this interaction, my mind can't help but wonder, was Joseph thinking, this isn't my child, but it is miraculous and wonderful. But how do I relate? What is my calling in this opportunity? It would be, to say the least, 
both wonderful and awkward, right? Now he believes in this miracle. But what's his role in all of this? What is he to do? This isn't the main point of this text, but his role was to move forward with his original calling. Consider that he was betrothed to Mary. He was promised to be her husband. She had not committed adultery. Uh, This was not an illicit relationship. He was promised to be her husband with all the duties, responsibilities, and privileges. And the angel says, don't fear. Just do what you were supposed to do in the first place. Take Mary as your wife. Joseph was not called to be the physical father of Jesus, but he was called to be the husband of Mary, to raise Jesus really as an adoptive father in the human sense, and to take that role with faith and courage. Verse number 21 gives Joseph further instruction. It says, pardon me, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A simple way of summarizing the fact that they were to move on with this is that they were to name the child. But interestingly, they weren't supposed to name the child just whatever they chose. Uh, That's an intervention in itself, because naming children uh, was an all-important task in the Jewish home. And in fact, naming in general was one of the first tasks given to Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't it? But often when a special child was born with a specific task from God, the privilege of naming that child was taken away. This happened to Zacharias in Luke 1. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Similar situation, only here in the case of Mary and Joseph, the call was much more clear. You will name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, which we're told is quite common in that time period, is from the Hebrew Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves. Think of this. Every other little Jewish boy, every other little Hebrew boy in that day, in the neighborhood perhaps even, that had that name. Every other little boy who was named with that name had a name that would point outside. It would point elsewhere. It would point out and say, God saves, the Lord saves. But in this case, with Jesus, the name was applicable to the child himself. For unlike any other child with that name, he would actually be the Savior. There were other boys born and given that name. There were other boys born in the royal line. There were other boys born to more noble people with more noble birth stories. There were other boys born with less questionable circumstances. There were other leaders born who would prove to be strong and mighty. There were other kings who were born, who would lead earthly kingdoms to victory and salvation from physical enemies. Yet there was only one boy born in human history of whom it could be said, he will save his people from their sins. 
Don't fear, Joseph. This child is not the result of sin. Rather, he is the Savior from sin. Don't fear, Mary. Your baby will not bring you shame and reproach forever. Rather, he will be your Savior. And don't fear, Christian. Your Savior was not born like the other kings and rulers. He was born the sinless Son of God, and He is your Rescuer and your Redeemer. Finally, we see a fulfilling conclusion. A fulfilling conclusion. As we come to verses 22 and 23, we get to Matthew's very first uh, fulfillment quotation. If you remember from the introduction a couple weeks, uh, we, we found out that Matthew uses all kinds of these. Uh, I think close to 26 places specifically in Matthew is either a direct or indirect allusion to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew loved to point out fulfillment in Jesus. He can't help but point back to the scriptures and say, this is talking about Jesus. You can't miss it. Let's read verses 22 and following. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he gives a quote from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is Matthew quoting Isaiah 7.14. Uh, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. Matthew quotes this prophecy from Isaiah. And interestingly, this prophecy in Isaiah is typological. What does that mean? It has sort of a two-stage fulfillment. If you study the passage in Isaiah, uh, there is a direct and immediate sort of fulfillment of that prophecy. But it's not un at all uncommon in the prophets to have a promised person or fulfillment in the immediate sense in which the promise is kept, but the fullness of it points to something bigger. And Isaiah's passage seems to be talking about a fulfillment in the immediate future, but there are parts of it which were not fulfilled, and they point outside of it. Matthew here points to that scripture and says that the fullness of the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 is the Messiah, the one who has come as this baby, Jesus. The fulfillment in Isaiah's day pointed to God being with his people in judgment, in the destruction of their enemies, but the true and complete fulfillment pointed to God being with them in person, as a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew, or Joseph and Mary were to name him Jesus, and Isaiah says, and Matthew quotes, they would be he would be called Emmanuel. Why the two names? Of course, his actual given name was Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah saves. Uh, but the name Emmanuel describes what he does, or really it describes who he is. The one who saves his people from their sins is God with us. This is God, not just in a typological presence, not just even in a spiritual presence. This is God in flesh, the Savior of his people. Joseph then, having had this vision and revelation from the angel, did exactly what the angel told him to do. 
Verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel Lord commanded him. Then he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He, he took Mary as his wife, controversy and all. Uh, the story of Joseph and Mary is a story of great faith on the part of both of them. Imagine young Mary, a virgin, betrothed but never with a man, now pregnant with the child of God himself. Imagine the fear. What will Joseph say? What will my family say? What will the people say? Yet, as we've seen, the answer to both Joseph's and Mary's fear was the very baby that caused the fear in the first place. Jesus was the answer to the fears and questions. That was Mary's first son. And just as her first son would be her savior, he would be the savior of her other children as well. The Bible doesn't give us any reason to believe that Mary remained a virgin. Nothing would have been gained by that. In fact, the natural reading of Scripture tells us that she had other children. She had sons and daughters. In the plain sense, the gospel speaks of her other children. And the final verse says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. Joseph and Mary were still a normal couple at the end of the day. Mary was not divine or sinless. The miracle was not Joseph or Mary. The miracle is Jesus. Jesus, the Savior of his people. Jesus, who is Emmanuel. Jesus, who is God with us. What is the application of all this? How do we, how do we take this home? Nearly 2,000 years later, and put it to practice, put it to use in our life. These points of application are going to progress importance in importance from kind of general to more urgent. The first thing, kind of a general one. When God calls you to something, your fear is only founded if you're relying on yourself. Think of this. In Scripture, it's said countless times, hundreds of times, really. Uh, it's found that do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. That is true. But we do fear, don't we? And what is fear? It's a lack of understanding, a lack of control, a combination of the two. Uh, God has called his children to follow him, a task which done in our own strength. If we do it that way, it's daunting and really, it's at best daunting and really impossible. How could Joseph move on with a marriage that began with such uncertainty? How could he faithfully be a husband in this circumstance? We often find that when we trust the Lord, the circumstances aren't what meets the eye. There is always more to the story in God's plan of redemption. If it's simply a lack of understanding or a lack of control that has us in fear, and we must look to the one with perfect understanding and perfect control. Another one. I should say two. It says one. I guess this is one part two. Bible characters aren't mythical legends. Bible people are real people. They're normal people. When something miraculous happens in Scripture, it's not because the people are miraculous. 
Uh, sometimes we view Scripture with this lens that this is not relatable to us because we're regular people. These are Bible people. Uh, we see miracles taking place, and we say, well, that has no bearing on my life. These were extraordinary people. But it's not because the people were miraculous that the Bible is miraculous. It's because it's God's story, and God is a miracle worker. Joseph and Mary were a normal, engaged couple. They were faithful and just, but they weren't perfect. God didn't choose Mary to be the mother of Jesus because she was perfect any more than he chose Noah to build the ark because he was perfect or because he was a master ark builder. No, God works in and through people because of his grace. Third application. Don't be afraid of the miracles in the Bible. Don't be afraid of the strange and crazy stories in the Bible. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. We said that this is the first miracle which takes place in the gospel records, the miracle of the virgin birth. And this teaching has been attacked and rejected and explained away so many times. Uh, there's a propensity to view Scripture with natural eyes and to say anything miraculous is mythical. But don't be afraid of miracles. I heard a preacher once tell of an interaction he had with a person who said, if someone came to you and said that their child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, would you believe them? And the preacher said, well, if I had that story confirmed by the angel of the Lord, and then the child grew up and lived a life like Jesus, died on the cross and rose from the dead, I might believe that story. Don't be afraid of the miracles in the Bible. The miracles that Jesus performed pointed to the fact that he is God. And the most profound miracle of all is the incarnation and the totality of it. The fact that he is God in flesh, truly God and truly man. And the fact that this God-man died a real death, rose from the dead three days later. And it's a miracle that we are saved because the gospel is a miraculous thing. This is only the first miracle we see in Matthew, but Jesus is God. His whole life is miraculous. And his miracle-working power is most evident to us in his saving grace. Finally, you cannot have salvation without incarnation. What do I mean by that? We said at the beginning that Matthew introduces two of the foundational Christian doctrines in this passage. Of course, that's what we call them. We've come to study them and, and write them down and codify them in, in books and theologies, and there's good to that practice, but Matthew just underlines them here, and he writes them down because they're part of God's story. The virgin birth and the deity of Christ were not inventions of theology. They are part of God's story, and you can't have one without the other. The second person of the Trinity didn't just inhabit a person who was already alive. God didn't just adopt a son who was living well on this earth. And Jesus didn't become God when he became an adult or performed his first miracle or had kept the law for a certain amount of time. Jesus was born, Emmanuel, God with us. That is, God in flesh. Think of John 1.14 where John records that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. The Word of God from the Father is Jesus. And what does Jesus' name mean? It means Yahweh saves. Jesus is not Savior unless He is Emmanuel. You can't have a Messiah and a King who saves His people from their sins unless you have a Messiah who is the Word become flesh. Jesus didn't become the sinless Son of God. He was and is very God of very gods. Co-equal, co-existent from all eternity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And this is the rescuing King. And folks, from our perspective, the opposite is true. You can't have the presence of God, Emmanuel, uh, God with us, unless you have a king who saves his people from their sins. There's no presence of God in our lives to bless and to save and redeem and restore and carry us into eternal bliss in the heavenly kingdom unless there is the work of God to save sinners like you and like me. So the birth of the king is glorious because the Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins.